to quilt and tell where quilters who love all aspects of the craft from traditional and contemporary to art and modern share their passion and perspectives on all things quilty. I'm Tracy Mooney. I'm Lori Baker. And I'm Ginger Sheehy Daddy. Hello, everyone. We are so stinking excited about today's show. Our oh, yeah. guest, <laughs> we've been dying for this one. So our guest is Brenda Grills. She is the VP of Marketing and Education for Handy Quilter. And we have so many questions to ask her. And for our fine finishes segment today, we are actually going to share some of our favorite moments from previous segments um, that are at least mine is very funny, so I can't wait. How are you, ladies? Doing good. Yeah, doing good. Uh, ready? I'm so. I don't know. I'm just so glad it's it's the holiday time because I, it yes. really does lift my spirits. Like I love getting up in the morning. I've been doing yoga in front of the Christmas tree. It's nice. Been amazing. <laughs> I do. I'm doing wow. like a 30 day challenge, and I'm already like up to day nine, and I'm like, yes, I'm doing it, and I just love it. <laughs> I am so you. impressed. That's fantastic. Oh. I was excited because I actually decorated, and so all of over the weekend we did put up with the tree and started putting up. Lights. My husband put lights everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sadly, I've had mine up for almost a month now already. So, <laughs> wow. I, nice. I couldn't wait. I could not wait. Like this year, well, I, it's like I just needed it so badly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who keeps adding Christmas trees to her house. Yeah. Oh. I think she's got 14 now. Nice. What? Inside the house? Yes. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, most of them are artificial, but she just got one. They get a huge, like the biggest one they can find every year because they've got one of those living rooms that has, you know, like a 30 foot ceiling. And so they got this ginormous, probably 14 foot wide tree (laughs) (laughs) over the weekend. She was like, sorry, we did it again. But yeah, they just I I get it. You know, we're all sort of uh, need need the lights and a little bit of joy. As we yep. shelter by ourselves and yep. spend Christmas it's, it, alone. It's working. It's, it's definitely working. And my daughter's 11. And it's so funny because she's at that like, okay, I know I probably shouldn't believe, but I still believe. And she just so I'm milking it, man. I'm like, all right, if I can get another yep. year out of her, I'm, yep. I'm going to take it. And my husband's like, just tell her. I'm like, nope, not doing it. <laughs> not yet. I not never yet. did. I never yeah. did. I literally, so my oldest son was probably, I would guess, eight or nine. And one day he turned to me and he was like, Mom, I know. (laughs) And I said, what do you know? And he said, you know, about Santa. (laughs) And I went, oh, well, you know what that means? And he said, what? And I said, one last Christmas present for you. And he completely denied we ever had the conversation. (laughs) It's like, okay, oh, no, no, no. I do. I believe. I totally believe. And yeah, I'm no. pretty sure he told his siblings not to ever say anything because none of them have ever so said cute. anything to me. So usually I still give them a Christmas present, even though he's now 28. That oh. says Santa on it, you know? <laughs> so. I love that, though. That's how it should be. Honestly, like, oh, I just think that's great. <laughs> you know, I mean, we got to believe in something, right? Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. No. And it's just, I don't know. There is just something like, you know, trying to hold on and and be a kid for as long as you can, man. I mean, like, oh, I just am constantly telling my daughter, don't grow up so fast. Just enjoy this. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. I agree so much. Oh, you know what? I almost forgot. So we actually got an email this past week. 
Oh, nice. Um, so here, let me read it to you. It is okay. from Jenny McKee. And Jenny is from Portland, Oregon. And her email said, I'm sitting here listening to Diane on the fine finishes in the latest episode and laughing. I'm putting the final stitches in the binding of a quilt. I started for my son when he was in middle school in 1986 or 87. <laughs> He's Ow. 47 now <laughs> and a retired Navy chief. Navy chief. Um, the quilt has 782 different red fabrics, the beginning of which I acquired by trading five inch squares for red through an ad in the quilter's newsletter. It was a wonderful memory to relive while working on the finishing stitches of the of the binding on the last side 35 years later. The pattern is Devil's Puzzle. Happily still stitching, Jenny McKee. Oh, that is so great. She sent a picture, right? We can <laughs> of post course a picture. She did. Yes. Oh, yes. I will put it. It is fabulous. So basically, if if you don't know what a devil's puzzle is, it's a it's a version of a drunkard's path and it's all black and red. Every single curved piece of red fabric is a different red fabric. It's and, amazing. And we talked about the fact that back then all of the prints were small prints. See what I I meant? Yes. They're, they're all little prints. <laughs> yes, they are. They are. And it's beautiful because, you know, some of them are a little more on like the light pale tan side. Some are a little bit purple um, and and most of them are like bright red. And it shows you all those little tiny itsy bitsy prints. Yep. So we'll share that on the show notes page. Nice. So 35 years. So as long as I get my husband's quilt to him within 34, I'll still be doing good, right? That's right. I think so. <laughs> I was thinking the very same thing because my oh. oldest UFO, I think I started in probably, gosh, 2000, oh. <laughs> maybe 2001. Oh. All right. Well, see, that's, you're getting... Yep. <laughs> that's only 20 years. No I know. That's see? right. You still I got plenty still, of time. I still have 15 years to go. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So are you guys ready to go talk to Brenda? Oh, uh -huh. yes. Today in our open studio segment, Lori Ginger and I are so excited because we have Brenda Girls who is the VP of Marketing and Education for Handy Quilter joining us today. We have so many questions that we want to ask her. So welcome to the show, Brenda. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you. I don't even know. I think that you are going to be overwhelmed with Lori and Ginger and I talking over each other. So I'm just going to apologize in advance. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I've ever written so many notes for like somebody that I want to talk to. <laughs> it's got to be crazy. So why don't we just start at the beginning? I want to know how long you've been sewing and quilting and how you know, that came into your life? I came from a family uh, that uh, my grandmothers did not sew. I had a grandma who crocheted. I had another one who milked cows and played cards, but she didn't <laughs> sew. My mom learned how to sew in home ec and continued sewing the rest of her life. She loved it. And she taught my sisters and I how to sew. I'm the oldest of three girls. I can remember being about 
eight or nine, must have been about nine years old, and laying my two-year-old sister down on the floor on a piece of folded up fabric and tracing around her and sewing her a shirt. And that's oh. how I learned about ease because I didn't allow any. Hardly, <laughs> <laughs> you found out. I yeah, did. I've done that. I tried to squeeze that little two-year-old body into this shirt that didn't have enough. I didn't account for the roundness of her body, just, you know, the flat. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I've always loved to sew, and my mom was also a crafter and loved to do any kind of craft. So we always were crafting at our house. But quilting was not a part of my life growing up at all. With one exception, Somebody, I think from our church, gave us a tied scrap quilt. And I didn't have a word for what that was. It it just was a blanket somebody gave us. And my sisters and I would fight over it because the coolness of that woven cotton fabric felt so good on your skin in the summer. Because, of course, we were in Nebraska in a farmhouse, no air conditioning, and that cool cotton always felt good. And we would play our own versions of I Spy with that scrap quilt because, of course, the scraps were used multiple times. And we would say, I'm thinking of something with pink flowers. And then we'd have to try to guess. That was my exposure to quilting. That and I went to a country school. It was St. Paul's Lutheran School in Arlington, Nebraska. And there were quilters there. Every Thursday, the quilters took over the gymnasium at the school, or at least half of the gymnasium. And they put up frames and they hand quilted and raised money for missions. And I was just mesmerized by those quilts. And that's really when the bug hit me. I didn't know what it was or or what I was going to do with it. But boy, I loved looking at those quilts and talking to the ladies about them. That sounds amazing. And I, I can relate to so many things that you said, actually. <laughs> My grandmother also crocheted and played cards. Oh, <laughs> so. yeah. I, I am a heck. Well, I'm a, I'm a heck of a pitch player if you ever want to take me on. Awesome. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. So when did you start working? How did it become part of your career? It, it didn't become part of my career until after my uh well, after I had kids. So I, I went to college and I became, I had an English major and I edited the college yearbook. So it's really interested in all of that, writing, editing, publishing. And I still was quilting. I was, I was piecing quilts from polyester double knits in my dorm yeah. room when yeah. I was in college in the seventies. And I didn't think of it as a career at all. And I went off and taught school for a few years, met my husband-to-be, married him. And we had three kids in four years. And I didn't go off and work anywhere. I was, uh, you know, your quote-unquote stay-at-home mom. And through all that, I kept sewing and designing my own stuff. I never was very interested in sewing somebody else's patterns. I always wanted to make my own. And I started to um, publish my own patterns. And one of the big things that really pushed my quilting career was I, I was teaching at local quilt shops and I found an application form for a scholarship that Carrie Bresenhan and the Quilts Inc. team were offering 
It was called the Jewel Pierce Patterson Scholarship oh. for Quilting Teachers, which is a mouthful and not a very good <laughs> marketing name, but it was named after Carrie's mom. Mm-hmm. And every other year they hosted a festival in Europe. And on those years, they would choose an American teacher to win the scholarship. And you got an all expenses paid trip to that quilt festival in Europe. And the year that it was in Karlsruhe, Germany, I thought, well, that's my year because I do speak a little bit of German. So I put an application together. It was a big three ring notebook. And I did it in about a week because I am the queen of procrastination. (laughs) (laughs) And I sent it down to Houston. And one of the best days of my life was when Kim DeCoste, who's now passed, but became a good friend of mine, called me and said, I've got good news for you. You won. You want to go to Germany? Awesome. (laughs) That's so cool. What that scholarship did for you was to expose you to the world. So not only did I get to see how other people taught in Europe, but there was a requirement with it. You had to come back and teach at Houston the next year. And you also had to hang a show of quilts that actually you had to teach all year long on your own. And then the following year, you hung an exhibit of quilts from the students that you had. And uh-huh. and then I also taught in Houston that year and got lots of inquiries from people around the country then to teach. So I became one of those traveling quilting teachers who did the circuit. And Houston is a great place to get exposure like that. Still is. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure is. So that started me off. And and about the same time, I also published my own book. I started my own publishing company. I called it Gray Wind Publishing. And I printed my book in a little town of Henderson, Nebraska, which was just down the interstate from where I lived in Nebraska at the time. And uh, all of those things just helped me build a resume of quilting business type activities, even though I was a stay-at-home mom. Hmm. Did you think of it as a career path or were you just taking every step as it came? I definitely thought of it as a career path. When I married my husband in 1979, I married a farmer and uh, I grew up on a farm. I didn't really want to live on a farm. And I used to say I was never getting married. But if I did, uh, I wouldn't marry a farmer. But if I did, (laughs) I certainly wouldn't have kids. (laughs) <laughs> and then I met my farmer, married him in three months' time, and we had three children in four years. So, so wow. much for those plans. Yes. Wow. That's amazing. So, 1979 was followed by 1980, which was known as the farm crisis year. Lots of farmers lost their land that year because interest rates went so high that banks were calling in loans, even from farmers who could make their payments. And As part of getting through all of that, the local extension services in the counties were offering classes and workshops for farmers to learn how to be a little leaner and and how to uh, cut expenses and how to do things to hang on to your land. And one of those workshops, they asked us to write down 
a goal for ourselves, a long-term goal. Didn't have to do with farming. What's something you really see yourself doing one day? And I wrote down that I was going to be the editor-in-chief of Hilder's Newsletter magazine. (laughs) Now, I never made that, but it did (laughs) give me a goal to work on. And, And I was this English major who liked to write, who also knew how to design quilts, and I had all the skill set it took to become a magazine editor. And as I thought about it, I realized there weren't a whole lot of people that had that particular group of skill sets. So I figured I had a shot if I could just get myself close to a magazine. And you did. I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't, uh, I ended up, uh, and, and I, this, this publishing company is the one you all work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I joined it, I'm trying to think who the who owned it. Uh, uh-huh. Start with a P. <laughs> I can't remember, but we went through a couple of owners, and and publishing houses changed names while I was there. But uh, I started. I didn't start there until I was an empty nester. When my youngest child went off to college, my husband and I had a conversation about farming. Uh, you do know the joke about farming, about do you know uh, what the farmer did when he won a million dollars in the lottery? What? He kept on farming until it was all gone. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So in farming, you either get big or you don't have enough money to support a family very well. And we were not the kind of farmers that kept adding acres and getting big. And we were buying our own health insurance on our own. And we were going backwards financially. So we decided we were going to have to find something else to help support our family. And we agreed that one of us would follow the other if the other found something elsewhere outside of where we lived in Nebraska at the time. And I had a friend, Elsie Campbell. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, Elsie? Yes. So Elsie was a magazine editor remotely for a different company that's no longer publishing. Uh, They published out of Pennsylvania. And when they closed, she was looking for work and she knew about an assistant editor position at McCall's Quilting with Beth Hayes as the editor in chief. And she tried Mm -hmm. her darndest to talk Beth into taking a remote editor, but Beth would not have it. She needed somebody with boots on the ground in Golden, Colorado. So when Elsie finally gave up, (laughs) she called (laughs) me and said, "Uh, there's an opening that you might be interested in. And um, I called Beth and applied and it it only took about three weeks and I was out there working. Wow. As the assistant editor in McCall's Quilting. It was a great team. It was a wonderful magazine. And I really learned a lot about putting a magazine together from Beth Hayes and that team. So then how long were you in the magazine world? Because I think of you now as, you know, kind of a marketing guru, uh, you know, heading in that direction. So how did that path kind of take place? I started there in February. And by that fall, the editor-in-chief of Quiltmaker magazine announced that she was going to retire the following spring, Caroline Reardon. And I put my name in the hat for that job and got hired as the next editor-in-chief of Quiltmaker. And I was there for about four years. And when you're a magazine editor, 
it's important to get to know your best advertisers. That's one of the things that happens <laughs> yep. at quilt, quilt market, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Yep. I call it smoothing. I, I think <laughs> yes. that might be a word my grandma, my German grandma used. We smoothed a lot. Mm-hmm. So one of our best advertisers was Handy Quilter. And I met Mark Hyland, the CEO of Handy Quilter, because he took us to dinner or we took him to dinner, one or the other. Probably both happened in years and uh, really liked what he was doing with that company, what he and his team were doing with Handy Quilter. And I admired what they were doing. And along the way, I got an email one Christmas that uh, was from Mark. He BCC'd a bunch of friends in the industry. And he said, we're ready to hire a new director of marketing for Handy Quilter. And wondering if any of you know of somebody who might be interested, who would have the following skill set. And I have to be in Georgia at my son and daughter-in-law's house for Christmas when that email came. And I printed it out, ran upstairs to my husband and had him read it. I said, does this sound like anybody you know? And he says, "Uh, could be. I said, we're moving to Utah. (laughs) wow so i called mark and he interviewed me and then um i had a problem he was ready to hire but i was taking a group of quilters on behalf of quilt maker to japan in january and so i wasn't able to come to utah to interview until i had gotten back from that trip and so i interviewed with a terrific case of jet lag, uh, having come back from Japan and um, got the job. And and within a pretty short time, I moved to Utah. Now, each time I moved, first from Nebraska to Colorado, then Colorado to Utah, each time I left my husband behind to kind of, you know, wrap things up, get a house sold, whatever it took. And that move from Nebraska to Colorado took my husband three years. Oh, and no. oh wow. wow. So that's a six hour drive from Denver to our home in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And uh, we made that a lot, a lot of weekends. He and I were driving back and forth. The move from Colorado to Utah only took him about a month to get the house ready to sell and, and uh, join me in Utah. And Uh, it's been really pretty wonderful that uh, he was in a position that he could do that. He's, he's a kind of a machinist. He has his own business making things in a machine shop and we move his tools and equipment with us. So uh, instead of looking for a house, like all of you do, we look for a (laughs) shop for for my husband and then we take the house that comes with it. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. But, you know, for, for my husband, the shop is the same. It's the equivalent of the sewing studio that you and all and I all have. Uh, you need that place to go and be creative. And he understands it because he's that way, too. See, and it fact, goes back to I, I, I still think we need a segment in the show that really focuses on quilters husbands, because every quilter has such an amazing husband, like a true quilter. I have yet to meet one whose husband isn't fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> And don't limit it to husbands. You know, quilters' yep, spouses it's true. would be a spouses. very interesting yep, yep. topic. You're absolutely right. Yep. Yeah. So, so the path, the career path has been an interesting one for me, and and always I've I've loved every step of the way. 
And uh, shortly after I became the director of marketing, they added the education group to my duties, which is a natural fit because Handy Quilter is all about education. We are not a company that sells a quilter a box, puts it in her car, waves goodbye as we put our check in our pocket. We, <laughs> we support her. Uh, we support her when she's making her decision. We support her when she buys that machine because our retailers are asked to train her on that new machine. And then we continue to support her as she owns that machine with all of our content online and the various uh, hands-on actual retreats in Utah. We do a big academy in Utah. A very important part of Handy Cooler Marketing is the education. Well, and, and Brenda, this is where I, yeah, too. this is where I got to actually come in and and meet you uh, in the process. There, we had we were producing uh, Quilted, the Quilted, the Long Arm Show, and uh, I was lucky enough to be able to go up to Utah and see that facility. And can I just tell you, it was life changing. Like uh, meeting you and then seeing that facility, it just opened my eyes. I was like, "Holy cow, this world is amazing!" And and I, I just I was blown away. <laughs> Handy Quilter devotes so many square feet to education and and now to video producing that education. We've got our own video studio. And uh, we're in the third building that I've been in in nearly 14 years now of being with Handy Quilter. And each time we increase the size of the studio. And this last building, we built out a specially adapted studio with extra sound insulation. Because we lit, uh, Handy Cooler Building is in the flight path of a little airport, and we always have helicopters overhead. And <laughs> they used to interrupt us when we filmed in the old building, but in this new one, it's much nicer. And we have a full-time person who takes care of video for us, uh, shooting it and editing it. And we keep that person so busy that uh, sometimes I think we need another one, because we consider it to be that important to be able to always provide that education and training and support, hand-holding. Um, we're all about giving those owners the confidence they to, to run their and operate their long-arm machines because they're a little bit different than your home sewing machine. Well, and not to mention the slew of ambassadors and educators that come through there, you know, getting their training and then going out to the local shops and, and you know, doing all of that hands on. And the other thing that uh, two things I really loved about it was one from where the studio where we were filming, at least we literally would walk outside and we could look down into where the machines were actually being made which yes. was just fascinating. I mean, yeah. I could have sat there all day just watching that. And then to walk around the place, oh my goodness, the quilts that were hanging there, so much history, so so much diversity in what the quilts look like. And I know you had a big part of that um, in, in some a lot of those quilts, correct? Yes. I, and in fact, I consider myself a bit of a curator of the Handy Quilter <laughs> corporate collection. It had been started before I joined the company. The um, the CEO and the COO, Mark Hyland and Darren Denning, would attend the MQS show. That was Machine Quilter Showcase, a show that took place in Kansas City area. And it was kind of devoted to long-arm quilting. And in order to raise money to support the nonprofit group, the nonprofit arm of that show, various quilters would donate quilts to an auction. And then they'd invite members of the industry, um, 
Mark and Darren and then uh, people from our competitor companies would come in in the evening and they would hold up the quilts and had such a fun time during an auction. So the quilters loved it. It raised money for the nonprofit. We were happy to support the industry in that way. And they started buying quilts at those auctions. Uh, Another famous nonprofit auction is the small quilt auction that happens in the Houston Quilt Festival every year. And as we started choosing quilts from those auctions, it became more and more important that we were choosing really excellent examples of contemporary quilting. And we're completely brand neutral when we're choosing pieces. We've got pieces by gals who certainly quilt on handy quilter machines, but we've got Gamma Girls too, and APQS quilters and A1 quilters. Um, it's all about the talent and, and what you can do with that machine that we enjoy having in our collection. And that collection's got over 100 pieces now, and we rotate them in the building. We've also got a gallery in that building. Do you remember that, Ginger? I do. Oh, yeah. No, like I said, I mean, I, I was lucky enough because I think we were there for almost a week. So I went, hey, man, every second I could, I was just roaming the halls. <laughs> so we changed out the show in that gallery every oh, three wow. or four months. And mm-hmm. it's a full-fledged quilt gallery and people are welcome to come. Um, of course, we always have to say post-COVID now, right? I and, know. And there'll be a yes. day when everybody will feel better about walking into a strange building and all that. Right now, if you walk into our building, we're going to take your temperature <laughs> mm-hmm. right? and, and ask you to put your mask on. But uh, yeah, uh, the quilts hanging in Handy Quilter remind everybody that the mission, we're not just a manufacturing company. We are a, a company whose mission is to help quilters finish those quilts because that's really what long arm quilting is about. It's relieving the guilt that people have Mm. from that big stack of UFOs. Mm. You know, I have a question because, you know, I know a few of your educators and a few of your ambassadors. And I think maybe some of our listeners are might be curious. How does one become an educator or an ambassador? So those are two different groups and ambassadors Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tend to be people who already own one of our machines or have a connection to us in some way. And they have some sort of celebrity in the quilt industry. Joe Cunningham's a good example of Mm -hmm. one of our ambassadors. He's a quilt artist who quilts on our fusion using a pro stitcher. And he uses that robotic system in ways I've never seen anybody else do. He truly creates art and not traditional quilting art, but um, like it looks like pen and pencil sketch art that he does with that machine. The educator program is a very interesting part of Handy Quilter. When I came to Handy Quilter, again, nearly 14 years ago now, there was already an education program in place. It had been developed by our uh, national sales manager, Chuck Prasina, and Mark and Darren. And they had six territories in the country. They were sales territories. And each territory had their own manager, a territory sales manager. And we, they had asked those PSMs to find an educator from their area who could help teach about long-arm quilting to the various retailers that carry handy quilter machines. 
And so when I came, there was a group of six people already gathering and, and learning all about all our machines and and a program developed from that. But today I've got more than 40 of those field educators who are available to teach in retail locations. And with COVID, we've pivoted and they've been teaching virtually on Zoom. So I've, I've got some who do travel depending on the state and the guidelines that are available for in-person teaching, because of course, there's fewer people and you have to have a larger space and mm -hmm. everybody's wearing masks and you do it all safely. And uh, we've got we've got more than 40 who are spread across the country, U.S. and Canada. They all teach. We, we've really formalized the program. So they teach about 20 classes that are beginner kinds of classes and all of them teach the same classes but they all teach them in their own way. And the purpose of that is so that if we book Susie Quilter and she gets sick or something happens and she can't come, we can fill in with Johnny Quilter later uh, who has the same classes prepared. Then all those teachers also have their own proprietary information and classes, which they offer to the retailers. So they might come in and do a two-day handy quilter event and then stay on for another day or two and teach their own stuff. It becomes really exciting to have that hands-on teaching right there in your local shop. And we bring them in for training at least once a year, uh, introduce them to all the new stuff, teach them how the new machines work. And then we ask those educators to help us out uh, when back in the day where there were when there were quilt shows <laughs> and we had a booth <laughs> at the quilt show. And, and then we also provide a classroom for many of those shows, a classroom of 12 machines. And we think it's important to have an educator in that classroom to support the machines, support the lady who breaks her needle, so the teacher doesn't have to deal with that stuff. So those educators have a lot of work with us. They're all freelancers. They're not employees of Handicolor. And how do you become one? Well, you just go to handicolor.com. Take a look at the careers tab at the bottom of the homepage and click on it. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm recruiting right now for the next group because we bring in a group of anywhere from five to eight new educators at a time, bring them in as kind of a freshman class, teach them all about Handy Cooler and how we do things. And then they go home and start preparing samples and wait for their first gig. It's it's exciting and it I always tease them when they come for training because in my mind all those educators just live together somewhere. They, you know, <laughs> I, I yeah. think they're all living together because when I right. see them they're all together. And but they're so excited you just can't imagine the sounds in the room with 40 people excited to see each other and to share tips and share stories and it's great fun. Great fun. That's very exciting. Yeah. It, it, it's, Definitely. It's really important. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Handy Quilter has been part of a, a large survey called the Quilter Survey for the mm -hmm. last almost 20 years. And we know from that survey that one of the most important things about buying a long arm is knowing that you've got local support and training. and. Mm -hmm. And service. And 
that's one reason why Handy Quilter puts so much effort into supporting local retailers. We've got almost 400 across the U.S. and Canada actual quilt shops, sewing machine stores that sell our machines that have uh, floor models on the floor all the time. And they are required to come and be trained on how to operate them and how to service and repair them so that there's somebody experienced in your neighborhood that can help you when you're getting started with long arm quilting. This is completely fascinating. And I think that we can probably talk all afternoon about this. Yes. <laughs> like two questions that I had. But... Right? I, I know. Goodness. Goodness. You know, you are just a font of information. And I think um, for our listeners, I think it'll be really interesting to hear your progression. Um, but unfortunately, we're like, already over our time oh, <laughs> for this segment. Um, so I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us today. And I think we're going to have to have her back. She's going to be on the list too, oh, don't yeah. you think? Oh, I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. That would be great. Well, okay. thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. So today for our fine finishes, we thought we would talk about our favorite moment in fine finishes. Uh, we've done a lot of episodes now, and there were lots to choose from. The one that I found that I liked the most is one where we talked about fixing oopses and how to fix oopses. And I thought that right now, when we're trying to hurry up and get the last of our Christmas presents done, Maybe we might need this because, you know, it's getting late. And if we mess something up, we want to know how to fix it, and not have to start over. So that's what I chose in Episode 11, Fixing Oopses. Well, for our Fine Finishes segment today, we're going to talk about embellishment, but in a little different light. I frequently use embellishment to cover up oopses. <laughs> You know, this part of the quilt or this part mm -hmm. of the project isn't quite up to my standards. So rather than throw it in a corner and say, well, never mind that, I almost always can figure out a way to cover it up, hide it, draw your attention to someplace else on the quilt. One of my favorites was... Um, a large quilt, I'm going to guess it's like uh, 60 inches or so square. And it's a Hawaiian-style quilt, so I've got this great big snowflake thing in the middle that I cut out of a full width of fabric. And as I was nearing the end, my fabric got doubled over and I cut oh, into no. the center of my design. And it's a gash two inches long or something like that. And like I said, it's a full width of fabric, so I don't want to have to go get another full width of fabric and start all over. So I'm sitting there thinking, how in the world can I make this better? The quilt is a project for a runway show where it's going to be under spotlights. So I thought, you know what? Let's do some Swarovski crystals. Mm. <laughs> and there is one segment on the quilt where it has probably eight or ten 
Swarovski crystals bumping right up against each other <laughs> to cover up the slash in the quilt. I'll put a picture of it on our show notes page. Why? Do you have a before and after? <laughs> no, I'd love to see the slash. Actually, I'd love to see the look on your face when you made the slash. Oh, you probably wouldn't have wanted to see the look on my face. I was so upset with myself. I can imagine. Why is it that it's always the mistake always happens towards the end? Well, and and it couldn't be on just a, a little quilt that was for the fun of it. It was for something I had to do for work. It was for a fashion oh, show gosh. for convention. I had to have this oh. done. It oh. had a deadline. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm also thinking about a quilt that you had hanging up in your office one day that had embroidery on it, hand embroidery, and you pointed out a little inchworm or caterpillar yes. Yes. on it. <laughs> okay, so this one's another fun story. I'm making this quilt. I'm teaching my daughter-in-law to sew at the same time to quilt. And she was doing fusible applique, didn't realize she'd gotten a little bit of the fusible stuff on the bottom of my iron. So then when I pressed my quilt, I got this brown streak where the melted fusible got on my fabric. And it was white. And the fabric was white. So it didn't come out when I tried to treat it. So I just drew a little caterpillar and embroidered a caterpillar over the top of it. I'll put a picture of that one on the, on the show notes page, too. Well, I've done a few things. I I have uh, I was making a polynatal stern type quilt one time, and you know how everything is supposed to be exactly yes. the same and match right? up and everything. Yeah, but I put a wrong piece of fabric noticeably in the wrong portion of a kaleidoscope. So one thing that I learned with that is that sharpies are great <laughs> mistake coverers because <laughs> I cover I followed the same design and I drew the design onto that piece and I swear unless you knew you really wouldn't know. Tracy, what'd you choose? For my segment, I actually went back to episode eight. This fine finishes cracked me up because we each had an interesting story to share. Um, it was titled, The Gifts We Wish We Could Get Back. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was a great title. It really was. <laughs> and we each had more than one story. So stay tuned. Well, now we're going to talk about that uncomfortable subject of when you give a quilt away and then you wish you had it back. <laughs> I gave a quilt a number of years ago to a young couple as a wedding present and when I heard that they were separating I was absolutely appalled that my first thought was oh my gosh what happened to the quilt mm. uh, <laughs> what are you kidding me but oh, that was what I thought I know. I know. so who got it who got the quilt? actually the young man who was my son's friend got the quilt Nice. All right. That's good. That's good. Yes. All right. Phew. But, but you know, sometimes we give things away and and then we see them being used and treated like something very ordinary. And we've spent hours 
And part of it is that that I don't I, I want my my time valued. I want my gift appreciated. But then I also have to think that I gave that to that person. And when I gave it to them, it's not mine anymore. That's true. Yeah. No, it's so funny. You just reminded me at Christmas, uh, my husband's grandmother, um, I love her to death, but she is not the easiest person to get along with. She is so just picky about every little thing, but she loves to sew. She was a a seamstress and a a tailor when she, uh, back in her day. And so when I got into sewing, it got me in good with her. And so I started (laughs) quilting. And I had done this one. It was a pattern that I had found, and um, it was these beautiful pieced um, Japanese lanterns. And, oh, my God, I was so proud of it. I absolutely loved it. And um, I showed it to her. And she was like, oh, it's beautiful. It's great. She had such a reaction. I was like, do you want it? And she was like, oh, yeah, I would love to take it. So when we went back at Christmas... She had it folded up and she had like a little like it was like her little TV that she had next to her and it was just sitting underneath the TV and that was it. So she was like using it to prop up that. And I was like, oh, that's uh, it. That's all you're doing. Like no. my heart just kind of kind of broke just a little. Yes. So I know what you mean. It's like, oh, OK, I was really not thinking that's what you were going to do with it. But hey, if that's what you need, it's serving, you know, <laughs> oh, the purpose man. she needs it for. But yeah, it kind of broke my heart a little. I bet. <laughs> I can imagine. Okay, so I was on Facebook, and I'm going to try to be as vague as possible, but a friend of mine uh, posted that uh, she got a call from a friend that she had made a quilt for, and they they wanted to give her the quilt back and have her give it to someone else so that um, she could make them a king-size quilt instead that actually fit their bed. You guys Aww. should see Ginger is sitting there with her mouth hanging open, <laughs> literally. I can't I'm imagine like, oh, having the, the audacity to do that. Oh, oh, oh my the, gosh. They, obviously, they have no idea. Yeah. I mean, first yeah. of all, n- not even the amount of time that it would take mm-hmm. to make a king-size quilt. But the expense. I mean, yes. really, yeah. when you think yes. about it, I mean, how many hundreds of dollars does it cost to make a quilt? And she said that she made them a very generous twin size quilt to start with. That was a gift, which, you know, in my opinion, that's, that's a lovely, really nice gift. That's a nice gift. You can snuggle under it on, on the couch. Yep. You know, it can comfort you when you're feeling sick. All these things like that. Oh. But obviously, they just thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to just have a king size? That'd be great. And Ginger, how about you? So for me, I chose the fine finishes from the episode, How to Be an Awesome Quilter. I'm not quite sure what the number was, but it was uh, with Kim from uh, gogokim.com. She was the main host. But then in the fine uh, finishes, we all talked about, you know, things that, uh, you know, qualities that, uh, you know, we admire in other quilters and then, um, you know, things that we admired um, or doubt our own doubts and abilities. And it was one of the first podcasts that I had ever really started recording um, with everybody. And it was right before, I think it was the last one before we all went into quarantine. And it literally feels like that was nine years ago. And it's just so amazing (laughs) that it was just in February. And when I listen to that, I, I talk about my confidence level. And just in listening to that podcast and 
knowing the level of confidence that I have now, thanks to you guys, it's just really funny. And it's just a nice little trip down memory lane for me and just makes me, you know, really realize what makes us special because you guys are always just there. And it's so awesome to have that support. Oh, definitely. Like, especially because I'm, I'm constantly, I'm working around you people all the time who are just amazing quilters. I get to talk with them 24 seven. And, uh, you know, for me, it's confidence, like just having the confidence, like I am good and I can do this and yeah, no, and not letting anything stop me. Cause I definitely, I can hear, it's so funny. I feel like I have so many great voices in my head telling me what I should do right. But I'm that one that's telling me like, no, it's wrong, you know, do it this way or that way. That it, it, it's just having that self-confidence in myself to be like, who cares what anybody else thinks? If you like it, just do it. And if you mess it up, that's how you learn. <laughs> and it's okay for things not to be exactly right and go ahead and finish it anyway. Yep, exactly. I, so. I know how Ginger f- feels because I remember when I started in this industry and started meeting people and I all of a sudden was surrounded by award-winning quilters as my friends it is really like you're like oh gosh look at my stuff and look at theirs yeah yeah but I I think that we need to remember what Kim said which is a lot of these professional quilters they have teams of people to help right they you know will send out their their quilt for you know to some great long armor and that's not the reality for a lot of quilters, you know, especially if you're quilting on a budget. Right. Um, that's just not what some people do. And and the more you do it, the better you get. Yes. Right. Yeah. And also, my style isn't the same as your style, isn't the same as Lori's style. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we can't really compare ourselves ever to any that's other right. quilters. That's right. Because no one's doing well, exactly the same thing. I'm just so incredibly stoked, you guys. Let me do this podcast every week. Like, that just blows my mind. Because, I mean, being able to take an hour and like talk with you ladies about something that I'm really, truly falling in love with. Is, this is just so much fun. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yay. And you got to stop doing that, Ginger. You deserve and, to be here just like we do. Absolutely. You know? Nice. All right. Well, good. I'm definitely coming in with, with pure confidence, you know, from here on out. All right. Excellent. <laughs> and if you don't, we're just going to give you a pep talk again. Yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, thanks, ladies. It's always so fun. Do we all feel like we're uh, awesome quilters now? I do. Yeah. I really do. <laughs> Excellent. And I hope all of our listeners feel like awesome quilters, too. Thanks so much for listening to Quilt and Tell. Remember, you can find more information about our sponsors or what we talked about today in our show description. If you haven't already subscribed, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please tell your friends. Thanks for listening and happy quilting. The Quilt and Tell podcast is produced by me, Tracy Mooney, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. 